I remember it was at night. I was very nervous because I don't know what I'm going to face, but I was only counseling myself, whatever I'm going to face, I'm going to deal with it. And then when we reached the village, the place was smelling of death. You know, you see a dead people around, you see a car destroyed. All her life, she had dreamed of this moment, but she never dreamed it would look like this. And I felt sad for what I see and nervous, but I was finally, I am at home. Heading home in the midst of an emergency. This is Forced to Flee, a podcast from UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. I'm Anita Rani. Episode 4 Emergency. Our main efforts were really trying to help people who had to flee to bring in humanitarian assistance. It was constant emergency activities. New emergencies pushed what was supposed to be a three-year mandate for UNHCR into a 70-year endeavour. Overseeing many of those emergencies, former High Commissioner for Refugees Sadako Ogata and before her, Prince Sadruddin Aga Khan. As long as human beings haven't learned to get along with each other, you will probably get this endemic problem of refugees. Over the next two episodes, we'll look at key moments since UNHCR was created. This is by no means a full recollection of events, but a look at some significant moments in history. We start in Hungary and the first large exodus of refugees in Europe after the Second World War. Part one, Hungary. I do remember a few things. I remember going on seeing a burned out tank with a boot standing with part of a leg sticking out of it. It's very sort of vivid in my mind. Frank Polme, describing a memory from the Hungarian revolution in 1956. He was seven years old when protests broke out in Budapest against the Soviet-backed communist regime. We lived uh, on the Buda side of the Danube, right near the Technical University, which is one of the areas where the revolution started. The uprising was crushed by Soviet troops and tanks. In 10 days, more than 3,000 people were killed. My father was an engineer in a large truck plant. During the revolution, the um, place where my father was working they opened the personnel files, and in his personnel file, it said that he was politically unreliable and uh, they should only keep him until they could find his replacement. More than 200,000 Hungarians fled the country. Some went to what was then Yugoslavia, but the majority, including Frank's family, went to Austria. I didn't know what was happening. I do remember that when we arrived uh, on the Austrian side, there was a little rise and my father sat down and cried because I think he knew that he would never see his motherland again. What Frank vividly remembers about his time there was the generosity of the Austrians. His father had a relative in Vienna. They walked into a local cafe to see if they could get a ride. And there was actually an argument that broke out because the truck drivers were all sort of fighting each other to see who would take the refugees up. They were just absolutely amazing. Frank didn't stay long in Vienna, only a few days. Almost immediately, his family was offered a chance to resettle abroad, 
an outcome that is extremely rare today. The Canadian government was absolutely fantastic. The Minister of Immigration at the time actually flew over to Austria to try and encourage Hungarians to come to Canada. We landed in St. John, New Brunswick exactly on December the 13th, so months to the day that we left Budapest. That's how quickly we were processed. Canadian authorities helped his family find a room. They moved in just a few days before Christmas. Frank remembers his mum telling him the holidays would be scaled down that year. It turned into a night he'll never forget. My father went to the Hungarian church and in the bus uh, there was an elderly Hungarian gentleman who had come out after the Second World War. He found out about our story and, and whatnot. And so we had just finished supper Christmas Eve. My mother was just clearing the dishes when there was a knock on the door. And this gentleman had rallied his neighbors, uh, none of whom were Hungarian as far as I know. They took presents from under their tree. There was turkey. I remember there was uh, bicycles, tricycles. There was hockey sticks and baseball bats that we really didn't know what to do with. And it really was an unbelievable Christmas. There has never been and there will likely never be a Christmas like that for me. I always think of that gentleman and his neighbors uh, every Christmas. A few days after arriving, despite not speaking any English, Frank's father got a job assembling transformers. Frank went off to school, eventually becoming a lawyer. I'm just so grateful for what uh, we've been able to achieve. I ask those standing in the way of the rights of refugees to stand in their shoes. Then UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon speaking in 2015 as hundreds of thousands of refugees and migrants crossed into Europe. His successor, Antonio Guterres. I fear not only for the lives of refugees, but for the future of European asylum, as restrictive measures are already spreading all around like a virus that also risks contaminating other parts of the world. When Frank saw how Syrian refugees were being treated, he knew he had to do something. I had always been trying to find a way to give something back to Canada, something extra. When uh, I saw the plight of the Syrian refugees, and especially that haunting picture of young Alan Kurdi lying face down on the uh, beach in Turkey. Something inside me really got angry. Frank wrote an article in a local newspaper comparing his treatment 60 years previously to that of Syrians. He says he felt like the Canadian government at the time wasn't doing enough. The Hungarians had the advantage of, you know, coming from Europe, being white. The religion was, uh, I think, more than 70% of the Hungarians are Catholic, so it was uh, widely accepted. But even then, I think that, uh, in my view, ignorance breeds fear, and fear breeds uh, resentment, and resentment breeds racism and, and hatred. Become an agent of change through Lifeline Syria. Soon after writing his article, Frank joined an organization, Lifeline Syria. It's helped bring just over 1,100 Syrians to Canada. The other thing that we're doing is we're partnering with a number of organizations to help uh, 
integrate Syrian refugees into Canada because, you know, quite frankly, the situation in 1956 with respect to jobs, with respect to opportunities, was, I think, a lot different than it is now for uh, refugees. Frank also helped to privately sponsor a refugee family through a program launched in Canada in the late 1970s in response to the crisis in Vietnam. Groups of Canadians or organizations agreed to financially and socially support eligible refugees for usually up to a year. And we've become friends with this woman. My wife, before COVID, used to go over once a week to help her with English and to practice. It's when you get to meet them and, and find out that they're a lot like us and they have their own unique and beautiful things about them that people really realize that uh, these people are great. Hungary, the country he once fled though, has made it much harder for refugees. In 2015, when hundreds of thousands of people fled to Europe, Hungary erected barriers to keep them out. It's implemented restrictive measures, making it harder to seek asylum. And since 2016, authorities have forcibly removed more than 71,000 people from the country. History has shown that those cultures that close themselves in effect shrink intellectually, economically, socially, and those countries that open themselves really flower because uh, people coming all bring something that benefits the country as a whole. Part two, Beyond Europe. 1957, the then president of Tunisia sent two ambassadors to our office and asked whether the High Commissioner's office could help to feed and to look after the refugees from Algeria. August Lint, the second High Commissioner for Refugees. This was the first time UNHCR was asked to assist refugees outside Europe. More than 200,000 Algerians fled the country during the war to end French colonial rule. They went to Tunisia and Morocco. And the question immediately arose, should the High Commissioner take charge of those refugees or not? The staff of the High Commissioner at this moment was completely divided on this question. They were divided because the Refugee Convention had limitations. For the most part, it applied to refugees in Europe who'd fled as a result of events occurring before 1951. Those limitations were removed in the 1967 protocol, making the convention universal. But going back to 1957, UNHCR ultimately did help Algerian refugees and in the following years was on the ground in several other African countries. Here's another High Commissioner, Prince Sadruddin Aga Khan, speaking in 1967. We have 800,000 refugees today on the continent of Africa. I think the situation came about essentially as, uh, as a result of the struggle for independence in many parts of the continent of Africa. Then you also have ethnic wars and, and, and tribal conflicts, uh, which in a way have developed as a result of independence in many areas, such as, for instance, Rwanda or the Sudan. Ethnic conflicts in Rwanda would force thousands to flee in 1959 and several times over the next decades. We'll have more on that in a moment. Going back to the 1970s, increasing violence and displacement in Asia prompted several major relief operations. 
1971, millions of refugees left what is today Bangladesh, what was then East Pakistan, to seek asylum in India. More than 10 million people fled during the war, which led to the independence of Bangladesh. It was the largest single displacement in the second half of the 20th century. Within a year, UNHCR helped the majority return. In the 1980s, wars in Central America uprooted more than two million people. Millions started to flee Afghanistan. To this day, many are still unable to return, making it one of the longest protracted displacements We'll have more on that later. Moving into the 1990s, there were forced displacement crises all over the world, including one of the biggest in our time, the genocide in Rwanda. I have been authorized to make the following statement on behalf of the council. Part three, Rwanda. I quote. A word of caution, this section contains graphic details. The Security Council is deeply disturbed by the tragic incident that resulted in the deaths of the presidents of Burundi and Rwanda. April the 6th, 1994. The plane carrying the presidents of Rwanda and Burundi, both Hutu, is shot down in Kigali. Everyone on board is killed. Over the next 100 days, 800,000 Tutsis and moderate Hutus are murdered by Hutu extremists. Hundreds of thousands start to flee Rwanda. They go to neighboring countries, Uganda, Tanzania, Burundi, and Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. This is a situation which cannot be sustained for many, for many more days or even for many more hours. No Filippo Grandi was head of the Goma office in Zaire in 1994. Water is need number one, shelter is need number one, and food is also need number one. Everything is a priority. The crisis was complex and spanned several years. It's difficult to capture it all in just a few minutes. To get a sense of what it was like on the ground, we spoke to four people who worked for UNHCR at the time, including Juliette Murakei-Soni. At the start of the genocide, she wasn't an aid worker. I was born uh, in Burundi uh, as a refugee. My parents uh, left uh, Rwanda in uh, the conflict of 1959, and then uh, I left Burundi in 1994, just uh, one week after the genocide had started in Rwanda. When you see people coming, uh, running away with uh, no arms, with a cut in the head, you see a child cut in the and I'm like, no. This is, for me, was the wake-up call. I said, I will not stay here. Either I go to help these people, and if I survive, alhamdulillah. If not, I'm going to support them. Whatever happened to me will happen. As Juliet prepared to head to the border with Rwanda, Tina Gelly was already there, working with UNHCR in Burundi. Just to, to set up a little, like, when we were there, we only had one car. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have an office. We were working out of a hotel that had like one phone line. So we didn't really know what was happening on the, on the other side. And one day in the morning, we were told to go to an area because they had a report of some Rwandans who had crossed the border. So myself, uh, my driver, a nurse from MSF and a colleague from Care Canada, we went over to the place and mostly it was they had 
some like blisters and things on their feet from walking so much. We tried to talk to them to find out like what happened, why did they leave? And, but they just said, you know, that things were bad. They didn't really tell us much details. And then at about maybe three in the afternoon, a Burundian soldier came running up to us and he was like, you know, you have to come. There's thousands of refugees that have come and they're all wounded. You, you have to come. And so we drove, it was probably about five or six kilometers away over the hills of Burundi that are like winding around. And, and I just remember thinking in my head, how can they all be wounded? There's like, they said there's thousands of people and they're all wounded. I was like, and I just remember thinking, how can they all be wounded? What are we gonna do when we get there? And then when we got to the place, the first guy held out his hand and his fingers, it was all bloody. And then they were, then we looked around and like everybody was wounded. Like they had machete wounds from on their necks, on their hands, on their heads. It was just, I've never seen anything like it. And we spoke to the military who were there and basically we just bandaged them up just wrapped bandages on what we could, and they were put in the trucks, and then they were ferried to the hospital. I'm actually surprised. I'm starting to get emotional. I must have suppressed it because, you know, it was really something terrible to see. A few days later, in the middle of the night, Juliet arrived at the border. She didn't tell her parents she was leaving. She knew they wouldn't want her to go. Juliet says the moment she entered Rwanda, she felt like a stone was lifted off her shoulders. She was finally home, something she'd dreamed of since childhood. But what she saw was a nightmare. I was sad and nervous, yes, because of what was in my face, especially seeing dead people. I never saw dead people in my life, but I was seeing dead people, dogs everywhere running to eat dead people. Of course, that was sad for me. And actually, I was kind of numb and angry. As word spread of the mass exodus from Rwanda, UNHCR's Panos Mumsis was sent to Tanzania. As we got close to the border from the plane, the view that I saw it was really amazing, uh, something that I had never seen in my life before. It was a, a long, almost like a human river of kilometers and kilometers long of people who were on the road, streaming out of the country, heading to the border and crossing over. And I kept on going back to the border because that outflow continued. And then I saw a group of young men, young boys really, who had dropped their machetes and the machetes looked like, had the, like there was blood on them. And they looked also like they were injured themselves. So I immediately panicked and I said, gosh, we need to get an ambulance. And then I realized that actually they were not injured, yet there were blood in their clothes and definitely on the machetes. And immediately a shivering thought came to my mind. These were not the victims. And of course they were together with their families, with women, with children. And an incredible moral dilemma came to our mind as to, you know, what do we do as humanitarians? Who do we help in the situation? Basically it was impossible to distinguish and for the sake of the majority and the hundreds of thousands of people that were out, we had to continue providing assistance uh, to the people. Um, it was a tough decision, but in that case, it was also a practical decision and advice that uh, 
for the sake of the larger number, we just had to continue helping everybody. Back inside Rwanda, Juliet was staying with two nuns who were helping the wounded. Her job was to walk to different villages or into the forest to look for survivors. And then the first time I was me and uh, another woman, we walk, walk, and then we saw there were about uh, two children who were laying down also with the cat, but they were still alive and the parents were dead. I just approached them. I said, don't worry. Uh, my name is Juliet. I'm with Mary. We are good people. We are coming to help you. Don't worry. And so you could, you could see in the face kind of, you know, like a relief. No, but of course, they were with the wounded. They have been laying there for how sometimes. So for them, they, they didn't know. They could not know we are good or bad. But I, our our... Uh, speech with them or say we are coming here to help you so that gives them a little bit confidence I think seeing those two children for me I, I saw a lot of children who were some dead some arrived with no parents so just wandering there without any any support so those for me it was kind of like okay these kids they had the parents before they live with the family happy family now they are alone After staying a few weeks in Tanzania, Panos flew to Zaire. About one million refugees were in the Goma area. There was a cholera outbreak. And that, of course, was as a result of the water scarcity. There was this dramatic death toll. Families would put dead bodies of the loved ones on the road, on the pavement, uh, because basically there was not even capacity to bury. By mid-July, the Tutsi Rwandan Patriotic Front took control of Kigali, ending the genocide. Again, there was more mass movement. Tutsi refugees started to return, while two million Hutus fled Rwanda. Camps in Goma in eastern Zaire became the base for the now defeated Rwandan armed forces and members of Hutu militia groups. The militarized camps posed a major risk to refugees and staff. Requests for international military help were denied. Two years later, rebels in Zaire started to attack the refugee camps. Refugees, some 220,000, have started to flee. All our 12 camps are empty. High Commissioner for Refugees at the time, Sadako Ogata. We, we, it is very hard to know exactly where they are because a lot of them have gone to the mountains and to the banana plantations. UNHCR suspended operations in Zaire and was forced to leave hundreds of thousands of refugees. A few days later, after negotiating with rebels, UNHCR was able to resume operations. UNHCR's Paul Stromberg was in Goma. You know, Zaire was crumbling, and so it was a fair amount of, you know, anarchy. UNHCR had a number of planes at that point, which we were using to fly Rwandans back to when we caught up with them, when they volunteered under, of course, the most terrible conditions, usually near starvation, malaria, being hunted by rebels. And so we were operating, you know, without any protection. So incredibly dangerous situations, I say, and not just, not just because there were armed elements of all sorts, but you're going up the, you know, Congo or Ubangi River in the pitch black where you can't make out anything in a cloudy sky. 
because you have to make it to a seminary or someplace you can sleep that night while you push into the the forest uh, further because you had a report that there were uh, there was a group of refugees in the area and you know going off for days with very limited communications or none in Kisangani we had to cross the Congo River and go uh, quite far south to the main refugee camps and you know there were thousands of people who by that point who were not able to walk and so sick with malaria starving and and then we were cut off from those camps and I still remember getting the word that you know we'd been turned away from the one ferry that was able to take our vehicles across the river and uh, going down on a on a motorcycle to the bank of the river just in time to see the ferry set off almost at sort of capsizing load full of rebel soldiers and you knew we knew what was going to happen and sure enough then we were cut off for a few days many thousands of people died and and you know others the remaining population were pushed further into Zaire I don't know if there are and I don't, I, I hope not, frankly, that there are any situations that are that um, dangerous and fatal for so many people as that was. More than 260,000 Rwandan refugees were rescued and repatriated to Rwanda. As people returned, Juliet was offered a job at UNHCR. She helped those coming back, making sure they had food to eat, but also she tried to help in other ways. And if you remember that time, we have thousands, thousands people walking, coming back home. I was, at the time I was working with the UNHCR, and I was with motorbike everywhere. And when I was walking, I, may, I saw a woman who had a basket in her, on top of her head and a baby in the back, another ba two babies in the, in, 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 on the hands, you know, walking. She could not walk. She was alone. Husband was nowhere to be found. She only came with those two, three children. And then I saw she could not walk. I stopped my motorbike. I saw her, her feet was full of brister. And then I took out my sneakers and then my socks. I put on her, her, her feet and I, I put my shoes, even though my shoes were a little bigger, but she could walk with it. So I put on her and then I took my motorbike. I continued. So that, that story is always in, in me also. And I wish I can see that mother now and the children. For sure now the children are 27 or more. I would like to see that mother. But at that time, of course, you don't know where the people are going. Another family that returned to Rwanda, her own. My, my mother always tell me, Juliette, you are crazy. Everything I do, with, uh, I'm taking a risk in everything I do since I was a small anyway. So he, they knew when they didn't see me, they knew I went to Rwanda. They were not surprised because they knew what kind of person I am. After working in Burundi, Tina also moved to Rwanda to help returnees. And we found, we saw some of the refugees, but I didn't remember, but they were like, Tina, Tina, Madame Tina. And I was like, who are you? And they said, we were in your camp in Gahombo. And thank you so much for what you did for us. And that was like the most rewarding thing was to see them actually back home and happy and, you know, moving on with their lives a couple of years later. So 
it was definitely challenging, but then you also got to see people go home and go home and be happy. So that was also something that it's not very, doesn't happen a lot nowadays. We don't get to do a lot of um, voluntary returns because the conflicts are just going on for so long and there's so much instability. Many lessons were learned after Rwanda for UNHCR, how it deploys and works in the field, but also for the international community. For me, you know, we keep saying never again, right? Everywhere, never again. What happened in Rwanda, it was really something that should not, should not happen again in anywhere. This it should be a, le a lesson for the world, right? In our next episode, we'll look at another major conflict in the 1990s, the war in Bosnia. It was the first time UNHCR mounted a relief operation in an ongoing conflict, but it wouldn't be the last. We'll also hear from colleagues in Yemen about what it's like to live there six years into that country's conflict. Forced to Flee is produced, written and mixed by Wakas Chuktai. Our editor is Shirley Kamir. Special thanks to Chungar Gadini-Williams, Dominique Hyde, the Video and Archives team in Geneva and UN Archives in New York. Visual design, marketing and social media by Red Habas. I'm the executive producer, Barney Thompson, and our host is UNHCR Goodwill Ambassador, Anita Rani. To learn more about the UN Refugee Agency, please visit unhcr.org slash forced to flee podcast. Mm -hmm.